inventors and their inventions. Welcome to Radio Cade, a podcast from the Cade Museum for Creativity and Invention in Gainesville, Florida. The museum is named after James Robert Cade, who invented Gatorade in 1965. My name is Richard Miles. We'll introduce you to inventors and the things that motivate them. We'll learn about their personal stories, how their inventions work, and how their ideas get from the laboratory to the marketplace. Hello, for those of you expecting the velvet voice of Richard Miles, I'm sorry to disappoint you, but this is Randy Scott, your guest host today for Radio Cade. I'm here today with Dr. Rich Patton, MD, out in Seattle, and he's the inventor of the SteriPath blood collection device. Hi, Rich. How are you doing today? I was pleased to say life has been very good to me and continues to be so. <laughs> Appreciate you making some time here. So just to start things off, why don't we take a minute or two for our listeners, if you can explain the SteriPath in you know, pretty basic terms, what the SteriPath does and how it benefits patients. The SteriPath instrument essentially replaces and does away with false positive blood cultures. How does it do this? The process is to use a needle which goes into a vein and a vein then are a conduit for putting blood into a culture vial. And that's the way it has been for 50 years. Needle goes into, in most cases, a vein, which then directs blood into a bottle with medium. And that process passes a skin biopsy into the culture bottle. And that is where a large portion of the contamination occurs. What SteriPath does is diverts the very first portion of blood from a vein and sequesters it. And that being done, the blood is directed past that sequester and into the vial of medium. So it's a very simple process and simple to understand. And that's what's the beauty of it is it's something that is very doable, should be done uh, worldwide. Uh, a lot of expenses and patient success and patient safety is has moved greatly ahead with this type of blood culture procedure. So, Rich, that's interesting. So, are you trying to avoid these false positives in blood cultures? Maybe a little bit more background for me and, and the listeners on what are the medical uses for a blood culture? Why would a blood culture be taken in the first place? Blood cultures are, are taken when people have high fevers or they become systemically ill with not only high fevers, but increased heart rate. And uh, when those symptoms are present, then a blood culture is ordered. And the, it takes about 24 to 40 hours to get the result. And that, that result is something that guides the therapy, the antibiotic treatment part of this. So that's the way it begins. And, and that's taking it to the point where a culture shows an, an, or, an organism that is a pathogen and it needs to be taken care of. A false positive means that they've detected what they think is an infection and there's not really an infection there, I guess. And so then they're going to administer antibiotics when the antibiotics aren't actually needed. Is that kind of how it goes? Yes, that's right. Prior to the use of the SteriPath, about half of the blood cultures that show positive are false positives. 
and that results in unnecessary antibiotics and increase in blood tests, increase in images, and all of this is not good for the patients or for the healthcare system. Unnecessary antibiotics are end up being a different issue in America and the world. Mm-hmm. And so how does a false positive come to happen and take place? I mean, why, why would that occur? It seems like it shouldn't be too hard to figure out if, you know, working in a hospital lab or something, but obviously it happens a lot. So how does that actually occur? What we have discovered is that a false positive results from small skin piece being dislodged from the skin. The blood drawing is obtained. And if using the steripath, that skin piece is diverted into a sequester area and does not get into the bloodstream. That is a very simple approach, and that's a simple solution to the problem. And I, I have been told by a lot of people that, gee, you know, why didn't I think of that? It simply gets rid of the piece of tissue which has defending a skin-residing organisms. That's once the steripath is in place, the antibiotic therapy is uh, started right after the blood culture has been drawn, and uh, physicians can be positive about being treated aggressively when that's the case. Without this diversion technique, about half of the blood cultures that are to grow some organisms those are skin-residing organisms that are normal and, and need no, no treatment. But it takes a while uh, beyond that to make, a, to make a, a, a blood culture a result known. It takes often 48 hours before the true nature of that infection is understood. Okay, so I, I think I can kind of picture this in my mind. So normally they go, they take the blood sample, the needle goes in, and of course the needle is a, a circle of metal that kind of ca- captures the, like the little tiny miniature pipe and it captures a little chunk of skin uh, before it gets to the blood and that skin then has the bacteria on it. So all that makes sense. And so the, the steripath then it sounds like is taking that little plug of skin and it's setting it off to the side and only the blood then flows instead of the blood plus that little piece of skin. Is that right? That's right on. Great. So, you know, you are a practicing doctor and you came up with this idea, but maybe let's step back in time a little bit. and curious just how you came to be a doctor. You know, where'd you grow up and what led you down the path of being a physician? Oh, that's, that's a good one. I grew up in a small town in eastern Nebraska about 3,500 people, some of the best farmland in the world. And one person that got my attention was a a physician there. His name was uh, Dr. French. And I found him to be someone who was articulate, who was calm, who was well-dressed and was a very kind person. And I have to admit that he appeared to be prosperous. <laughs> so it was a, a combination of all those things that made me look at medicine as a good career for me. So I would say, yes, he was the biggest influence on me. And I had a lot of experience with being a farmhand and a ranch hand. And I certainly didn't want to do that for the rest of my life. So I ended up going to uh, undergraduate school and eventually medical school. 
Okay, so is this Dr. French, was he like your family doctor? Or? Yes, he was. Mm-hmm. Okay. Nebraska probably didn't have very many doctors, I'm guessing. <laughs> there were two doctors there that were physicians. I think you mentioned that one of the things that you thought I should let you know about is what other people influenced me in that town. And I have to tell you this, that person that I looked up to beyond this position was my mother. And she was born in a sod house in Nebraska, became the first of a large family to go to college. And she was just a super professional with grade school kids, uh, first grade. Um, She was somebody who I was pleased with students uh, that did well. And she um, had great empathy for those that struggled. When my mother died and there was a funeral, an older man than me came up to me and said, gee, I, I was shocked when your mother died. I knew her as a beautiful woman, and indeed she was. And then recently, maybe a year ago, a woman about 45 years old introduced me. She was living in uh, Omaha at that time, and she asked me, are you in a relationship to Mrs. Patton? And I told her that I'm her son. And she told me of families that she knew that my mother was teaching. And she told me that she was a beloved person in this small town. So I think of her often and um, try to think about how she handled her life. Oh, yeah. So from a sod house to a prosperous doctor in one generation, that's, that's pretty good. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's great. So you obviously went to medical school, but you're now a pathologist, right? So I, I know what a pathologist is, but I'm not sure if our listeners will. So why don't you describe for us what a pathologist is and why a pathologist would be the type of doctor that would invent a device like the theriopath? Well, first of all, pathologists are in general considered a doctor's doctor. Doctors see patients and to treat them, they know they have to get tests done from blood tests to sometimes obtaining small pieces of tissue for analysis. For example, if someone has a lump in the breast, a needle might be put into that lump and then given to a pathologist to make a diagnosis. Is it benign or is it malignant? And the pathologist handle all that type of work, having receiving not just biopsies from breasts, uh, but also many biopsies of the GI tract and so on. And additionally, the clinical side of the pathology work is to make sure that laboratory work is accurate and up-to-date. So that is the relationship that pathologists have with clinical areas when they need this kind of help. Also, the relationship becomes one that now they are pathologists who are experts with liver disease, some with gastrointestinal disease, some with skin disease, skin tumors, and so on. All those have been become the system and awareness handling the systems becoming more and more specialized. In other words, the doctors, as I just mentioned, concentrate in these various areas of again, liver, lung, brain, GI tract, on and on and on. There are specialists in pathologies that are confined their practice to those specialized areas. Mm-hmm. So I guess if you're used to dealing with needle biopsies, then you're used to the idea of pieces of tissue stuck in a needle. So I guess this idea made sense to you in that way, too, that you were perhaps sensitized to think in that direction. The fact that when needle biopsies go through the skin or sampling tissue, for example, liver or thyroid, 
What happens with that needle is that when the skin is punctured, the needle actually cuts off a small portion of skin, which ends up in the specimen that is submitted for examination. So a common thing that would happen is let's just say that someone was doing a needle procedure and the thyroid gland, what I might see or another pathologist is not only a piece of thyroid, but also a small piece of skin that would be dislodged by the needle puncture of thyroid. Okay. So anyway, you going back, I guess, the way this kind of played out. So you, you kind of recognize this issue about the little piece of skin that gets caught in there. It causes these false positives and therefore the unnecessary use of antibiotics. So you'd identified the problem and the source of the problem, I guess I'd say. And then the actual product itself, how far along did you take that on your own? And at some point, obviously, you partnered up with someone to help commercialize the product. So how did that part of the story play out? Well, what happened initially with that is observing the skin fragments and checking to see if these pieces of tissue that uh, contain skin in them that was something that I um, initiated in my laboratory and showing a test of getting rid of the skin piece decreased our contamination rate by 50%, which was astonishing because over time, small increments are made of tests improving and nobody had come on anything at all in that range. So what I did initially after that was uh, to encourage another pathologist in the Seattle area to run the same test that I had done, and his result was the same. Contamination rate decreased by 50%. So at that point, we knew that we had a new procedure that was going to affect blood culture tests globally. And at that point, I started up a business with our CEO and other people to build a device that would capture these skin pieces and not them get into the vessels that have culture medium in them. And that took a lot of engineering, a lot of testing. And that's where we are now is we've shown that using that approach is revolutionary for the blood culture test and is something that we're working on beyond the United States, but also got a lot of intellectual property to cover our device, not only in the U.S., all around the world, Canada, Europe, Japan, on and on and on. Great. So the product's actually being used in hospitals right now and basically saving lives today, right? That's right. And saving a lot of money for hospitals and the healthcare system. Hospitals save money by fewer tests. It's uh, very good for patients since cultures that are contaminated often result in unnecessary antibiotics and increased stays in a hospital and puts them at risk for developing hospital-acquired infection. Tell me some more about that. So I would, as just a layman, I would think that obviously if I run a blood culture and I get a false negative, in other words, I blood culture says there's no infection, but there really is, so I don't treat the patient. Obviously, I understand how that's bad for the patient. It seems to me like a just as a layman that a false positive wouldn't be a big deal. So maybe somebody gets antibiotics and yeah, there's probably some expense associated with the antibiotic. But how does inappropriate antibiotic use actually harm patients? What happens is that patients end up with unnecessary antibiotics, unnecessary blood and fluid tests, fewer imaging procedures, 
both positive can increase hospital stays and there's potential there for acquiring hospital infections. Overall, expenses go up just because of the involvement of medical staff and so on. Uh, it's a big issue to let this go on. I feel like it's uh, not going where it is as fast as it's going because it's sloppy medicine to let this blood culture contamination go on in our country and worldwide. So basically the idea is that they're getting the antibiotic treatment, they're going to spend an extra couple of days in the hospital and other bad things might happen to them during that time. Uh, great. So obviously you're a physician, you come up with this idea for this new product, you're not a marketer or whatever, but you think remained involved with the company as it's gone to market with the product. So what's been maybe the most surprising thing to you as a physician inventor? What's been the most surprising thing to you about the business and commercial side of things? What has struck me is that this product that we have works very well. And at a level of improvement compared to the previous way of doing things, it's quite encouraging and pleased to see that this is done regularly now. But I have been very disappointed that it's not catched on sooner because of the reasons that we've already discussed. Everybody should have this done test, not just locally or in the United States, but it should be done in this blood culture test worldwide. So why wouldn't every hospital just adopt it immediately? It seems like it's much better for the patients. So is there some particular reason that's not obvious that this is a harder decision for a hospital to make? There are a number of reasons why this is going up not as quickly as we had hoped. You have to understand that the blood culture procedure has not changed in 50 years. It has not changed in a significant way for five decades. And when we start talking about this, a lot of people think, oh, we don't really have to deal with this in a hurry, but we'll probably take care of it someday. The reason for that is Part of this reason, I should say, is that the test change involves multiple individuals in a healthcare chain, all the way from the chief executive officer to the person who investigates the tests in, in a way that how it's going to cost them. And it turns out to be something that any institution where this has been successful has been one, one individual who's taken the leadership of our of getting it done and getting this money and changing procedures. Uh, all the way from the emergency department to the critical care area. All of those in individuals that are involved need to be trained, and it's just a big job to get that done. So those are some of the reasons why it's been slower to be uh, adopted than we had hoped for. You know, there's an author you may be familiar with, Nassim Nicholas Taleb, that written a couple of books, Black Swan, Anti-Fragile. He actually makes a point that we hear echoed through the voices of inventors like you all the time. But he makes a point that the things that have been unchanged the longest are, in fact, the hardest things to change. So an example he gives, I think, is that if you tried to innovate around the fork and spoon, it would probably be very difficult to get people to change because the fork and spoon have been the same for generations and generations. On the other hand, to get people to accept innovation around their smartphone is really easy because they expect it to change all the time and they're already kind of pre-programmed for change. It sounds like the dairy path is a little bit victim of that, that the way the blood cultures have been taken and processed has been the same for so long. It's maybe not an area 
where the clinicians and hospitals are that interested in and even considering change. Yeah, absolutely. You hit that right on the nail. I think what is waiting for this to suddenly become a an improvement that will be overwhelming in terms of the obviousness, very significant primarily on a patient safety level more than anything else. We don't know how many patients end up being killed by a false positive, but I'm sure it's probably in the hundreds and maybe even thousands annually in the U.S. And as I say, that part of it has never really been studied in a way, and it's very difficult to do that. But even if it's one person in the whole United States, everybody's saving money. And if you have this steri path in the pathway of taking care of patients, you're doing a good service, good patient safety that we all should follow, that we all should be acutely aware of. You didn't set out in life. It doesn't sound like to be an inventor, but you became one. Any thoughts for other folks, maybe like you, that don't think of themselves as inventors, but they have great idea to make the world better? Any parting ideas or words of wisdom for uh, somebody like that? I was thinking about this, and what would I do to guide someone who, let's say that uh, we're talking about physicians. The best physicians that I know were and are truly interested in their jobs. As I mentioned earlier, life has been good to me, and part of which was being a pathologist. These days, there are great options of medicine that are mind-bending, a number of specialties, researchers, educators, executives, just unlimited what sort of possibilities there are for people to work in medicine. And I would tell anybody who's interested in medicine that you should find your niche in medicine where you belong and you will do well. Mm -hmm. Great. Okay, well, thank you very much for your time here today. Appreciate it. And if people want to learn more about Steripath, they can just go to www.steripath.com and learn more. Radio Cade would like to thank the following people for their help and support. Liz Gist of the Cade Museum for coordinating inventor interviews. Bob McPeak of Heartwood Soundstage in downtown Gainesville, Florida for recording, editing, and production of the podcasts and music theme. Tracy Collins for the composition and performance of the Radio Cade theme song featuring violinist Jacob Lawson. And special thanks to the Cade Museum for Creativity and Invention located in Gainesville, Florida. <laughs>